0: Now, I'm going to throw you a curveball because I'm not preaching from Ezekiel this morning. I, um, I had a sense, it, it, to, to use the words of Luke in the book of Acts, it seemed good to me to take a moment and preach on something that, um, that I felt is particularly important for us right now. Um, and uh, I pray is, is useful and helpful to you as we seek to serve Jesus together. And so, if you've got a Bible uh, there, uh, in in here, the the few of us that are in here, or if you've got a Bible at home, or if you've got a Bible on your phone, unless you're also watching on your phone, which would be very challenging, um, then I would invite you to open it to Galatians uh, chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And that's where I'm going right now, and that's where I'll be reading from in just a moment, from the English Standard Version. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing... He deceives himself, but let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. So a little little bit on Galatians. I mean, for preachers, I think it's one of our our favorite books in the New Testament. It's kind of compact, six chapters, easy to, to, to move through, but at the same time thick with a lot of content. It's a letter written from Paul to churches in Galatia. And so if anybody ever tells you that, that there should only really be one church per city, because that's how they did things in the New Testament, just go right to Galatians chapter 1 and you'll see churches, plural. Um, but Galatians, so it's, it's, it's a letter written to different churches and different groups of Christians, and he tells them in chapter 5 Paul does that they shouldn't be captive to sin which is in its own encouragement isn't it that Paul has to write to Christians to tell them to keep on being Christians because some of them have stopped being Christians or at least have stopped walking according to the gospel that Jesus has given and so Christians who are slipping away from the truth so he tells them they shouldn't be captive to sin they should avoid walking in sinful and disobedient ways he tells them that they should be walking. By the Spirit. That's what we read in chapter 5 verse 16. Paul says I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? And so uh, Christianity does not believe, we do not believe that your flesh is evil and that your spirit is good but rather Paul uses these metaphors to speak of uh, good and evil sometimes, of sin and righteousness, of the, that which is spiritual and that which is according to the flesh, that is according to Uh, original sin the old man that you are before you know jesus and what does that mean what is what is walking uh uh, walking by the spirit what does that mean It, it means walking in god's ways not walking according to the ways of the flesh that is the ways of sin and he lists what those are by the way if you go over to verse 19 you get this list the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you have this, what what the uh, New Testament scholars call a vice list. So a list of sins, and then that's contrasted, that's contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is. Now notice, I want you to notice something just in passing. That That is singular, and that is intentional. Sometimes we mix this up in English, because fruit can still be a plural word in English. So a basket of fruit. Right? Or, or you can say fruits fruits actually still works but there's a reason why your translation there says fruit of the spirit because the Greek word is singular which is really kind of interesting and helpful because sometimes we tend to think of fruit of the spirit as you got this fruit, love and you got this fruit, patience and you got this fruit, peace no, but it's actually one, it's one package, it's one complete deal. So you can't say, well, well, I want love, but I don't want patience or self-control, right? I want joy, but, but not by that whole self-control thing that really I want to, no, it's, it's one fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit is, singular, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law unlike that vice list that we just saw a moment ago. There are plenty of laws, both of God and of man against some of those things, or all of those things in terms of the law of God. And so then, having given them this picture of the fruit of the Spirit, Paul invites them, so to speak, to to see what it looks like to live into that reality. Fruit of the Spirit, fruit-bearing reality. Verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus... What have they done? They've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I mean, see that connection between walking in the Spirit, crucifying the flesh, and how we relate to each other, right? Conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So how do we do that? What does it look like to walk in this way? What is most remarkable and what I want to show you this morning is that we tend to think of spiritual fruit and fruit of the Spirit as mainly an individual activity. And, wh- and what I mean is, you know, so, so okay, I want to be full of love and full of patience and full of self-control. And so to do that, I need to get my Bible and go into my prayer closet and then I'll start producing spiritual fruit. And, and true enough, I'm not, I'm not disputing that. There's really something to that. Certainly, if uh, what, uh, what I would la- some people call their quiet time or their devotional time, I- I'd like to call it private worship as opposed to public worship. Uh, so in your private worship, that should be part of your faith. Private worship should be part of your faith. And if it's not, you will greatly struggle to see the, sp- uh, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, if at all. But how interesting is it? That right after calling us to to walk in step with the Spirit, right after calling Christians to do that, and giving us this picture of fruit of the Spirit, what does he do? He he moves into a corporate context, not an individualistic context, right? So he says, fruit of the Spirit, walk like this, and then we get to chapter 6. Brothers. So he's talking to the whole body, whole group. Brothers. If... Anyone is caught in any transgression. You, that's plural, who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He moves from spiritual fruit, which I, in my opinion, I think we tend to think of that as individualistic. My love, my joy, my peace, my patience, my self-control, and so on. And and that's, that's true. You do have, you are individually accountable for that. But Paul says this is going to get worked out then in the context of what? Brothers brothers and sisters yes taking care of one another that's where that's the stage on which your spiritual fruit happens so just the, the first idea i want to give you is that apart from brothers that you can can brothers and sisters that can work out this spiritual fruit together you, i mean what good is your spiritual fruit it's for your neighbor that love and that joy and that peace and that patience and that self-control it's not just for you it's for your neighbor And so I want to show you at least three things from this text this morning. First, that we have a responsibility to take care of each other. As soon as we do that, though, there's a risk of temptation involved. And then finally, we have to take that seriously because one day there'll be a reckoning or a final judgment. So there's a responsibility, there's a risk, and there's a reckoning. So there's a responsibility to take care of each other. This is verses 1 and 2. Why don't we go back to to verse 1. So we see, brothers, if anyone is caught caught in any transgression already the language is really interesting because he didn't say if anyone willy-nilly sprints into sin okay language is caught and then I even think it's a softer word transgression not not you know and there are many words for sin transgression is one of them but if anyone is caught in a transgression what does that tell us? Well, the first thing it should tell you is that sometimes Christians get caught in transgressions. I think there's enough evidence there for me to make that claim based on the text. That people can get trapped in their transgressions, they can get caught up in them, and they need help. And when you think about it, almost all sin, there, there are exceptions, but almost all sin is a mixture of being caught and being rebellious. Right? I mean, if you think of sin in your own life, it's like being caught in it almost feels existentially accidental but then also there's intentionality there's rebellion in it right uh, i mean there are exceptions i can think of you know, i mean you know david right having uriah murdered that's what the old testament calls a sin of the high hand right not not a lot of sort of uh, oops accident caught there that's there's a lot of intentionality there but but think back to the garden the, the original sin—it was—it was both deception from the serpent and intention. The woman saw the fruit, saw that it was good, saw that it was—you know—desired to be make one wise. And then her husband, who was with her, didn't say anything, but he—he he took some as well. And so. The the first sin there has that blend as well. Sometimes, and sometimes when you're analyzing in your head or or you're observing somebody else's sin, those ratios are hard to determine. How much of this is caught in a sin, how much of it is is really intentional. I mean addiction is a good example of that. Is addiction getting caught up in the sin or seeking the sin? Well, depends on the case. It's kind of hard to say. Are our enemies really clever? Our flesh it deceives us. Our flesh is very deceptive. Our world tempts us in all sorts of ways. And, and so what should we do? Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, and immediately, oh, it's like, like the spiritual ones. I'm, I'm really spiritual. No, no, what did he just say? Walk in the spirit. Those who are exhibiting love, joy, peace, patience, so on. That's, that's in, in the context, that's what spiritual means. So those of you who, as, as far as you can tell, are manifesting those things, that, that you're perhaps in a time where you're strong in these ways where your brother's weak, well, go to him and help him out in a spirit of gentleness. Restore him. And so we should try to help. And he says, uh, let's see, uh, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. There's that gentleness, fruit of the Spirit, remember? Fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. A great reminder. Some people have no trouble with pointing out the sins of others even to their face. Some people like just have a lot of boldness in that regard. They're not particularly afraid about confrontation. It tends to be <coughs> excuse me, it tends to be that people with that <coughs> particular strength struggle to be gentle. And it tends to be that those who are gifted with an abundance of gentleness tend to struggle with confrontation. So Paul puts these two together, right? So, so you, should, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Those two should go together. What does that look like? Verse 2, it's going to look like burden bearing. Not fixing a car, right? Not fixing a machine. I'm, I'm coming to you so I can fix you, right? I'm the expert. You're the idiot, right? So I'm here to fix you. No, no, no. I'm, that seems too heavy for you. Let me help you carry it. Right? Let, let, me, let me see this Thing that's crushing you not crush you anymore because i'm going to help you take it onto my shoulders too so it's not a matter of so so fixing is not the metaphor but burden bearing is and then he even says so fulfill the law of christ this is how we fulfill the law of christ well what is what does that even mean fulfill the law of christ think back to the great commission right uh, go go into all the nations right Preaching the, preaching the gospel, baptizing them, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything I've commanded you. Right. So there's there's law of Christ, everything I've commanded you to do. <clears throat> but then, think about how Jesus ministered to people during his earthly ministry. When he saw people caught in their transgressions, and he came, he always came to restore the repentant one in a spirit of gentleness, didn't he? Jesus always comes to those saying, I know my sin, like, Lord, help my unbelief. He's always moving toward those in gentleness. Now, those who are sinning with a high hand, like the Pharisees, he moves toward with with firmness and and courage and confidence and sometimes even anger. But, But toward the repentant, he moves toward them with gentleness. And so this is a hard thing for us to believe that we ought to practice all the time. That, that you who are spiritual should go to this person who is struggling, caught in this transgression, and restore them. That's hard for us to believe. At least one reason why is because we're Westerners, and oh boy, especially because we're Southerners. And in the West, and I think especially in the South, there's, uh, you know, there, there, if we had a list of worst sins you can commit, on that list, in the top ten, would be invading somebody else's privacy. But here's the reality. If you don't love me enough, to help me remove the sin from my life that's destroying me, you don't love me enough. You don't actually love me. It's, it's a really terrible way that we lie to ourselves, right? When we, when we think about these things and, and confrontation, if we say, well, you know, I, I struggle with confrontation, but, but, preacher, at least I can say this, my problem isn't pride, right? My problem isn't pride because I'm, like, scared of people, I'm scared to go, to go talk to somebody. I would be way too scared to ever confront my neighbor about his sin, so my problem isn't pride, it's, it's probably that I'm too humble. <laughs> no, your problem is that your neighbor's opinion of you matters more to you than the state of his soul. Right? Your, your neighbor's, we call that fear of man. Right? Biblically speaking, that's called fear of man. Now, that's not to say that there's not a risk in this and you charge in willy-nilly anytime you observe or think someone's in sin. That's verse 3, by the way. Let's go there. It doesn't mean you just charge in. He says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So, so we are called to help those who are struggling. In case you forgot, that was verse 1. Okay? In case you forgot, that was back in verse 1. If anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So knowing the responsibility, now I'm moving to the second point, which is the risk. This is the risk right here, our, our temptation. Tempted to what then? To the same sin? So whatever sin you're confronting is the sin to which you'll be tempted. There's, there's some evidence, I think, for that. There's a good case to be made there. Because it does tend to be the case that if you're helping someone in a particular kind of sin, it, it just tends to be easier to start to believe that you yourself are invulnerable to it. But, but I think that what Paul is talking about here is, is quite simply the sin of pride. So, I mean, you're going to help someone, which makes you seem rather like mighty and, and put together. And that's because of what he says in verse 3. Right? If we go back to verse 3. He says, if anyone thinks he is something, right? Well, I'm the one who's here, after all, who's shown up to help you, so I must really be something. You can hear the pride there because when we seek to help our neighbors in this way, when we seek to to talk to our neighbor about sin in their life, there are two kinds of lies, deceptions, ways to deceive yourself that will creep in. The first one is that you think, because you are the helper, it means you are the super Christian. Right? It's the first kind of lie that can sneak in. And again, you probably won't notice it. Because this is what it's like to battle against the flesh. That you fight and fight against your sin. Maybe you've experienced this. You fight and fight against your sin. Maybe some particular besetting sin. You start to gain victory and freedom and experience and strength. And then you start to think, well, I must really have something going on. Oh, so pride knocks you down right there as soon as you feel like you get a little bit of, of forward momentum. This happens, for example, with our intellect, I think. Even, even oh, Lord, help us, even when we are maybe reading the Bible and we, we discover some new like insight that really excites us and it thrills our heart and we apply it to our lives and, and like lo and behold, it helps us and it helps us bear fruit and it gives us courage and joy and peace and, and patience and then immediately it starts to become a temptation for pride. Because I start to look around at all you impatient people. hmm. Apparently you haven't seen the light yet. All these cowards, right? All these cowards hiding in their living room from a virus. All these arrogant fools who won't do as I do, or as I think they ought to do. And then before you know it, pride, right? With the gift that God has given you, and you turn it into pride. This is the temptation that's going to confront all of us. The second is that the second way is that you want to lie to yourself, deceive yourself, and say that since you are, in fact, stronger than your neighbor in perhaps this particular besetting sin and, and that happens, okay? It, so if, if, if the Lord has gifted me in a particular way, either over time or seemingly overnight, to be particularly well-guarded or, or strong against certain temptations, that's a good thing and I can acknowledge that, right? I can say, I have not been tempted to do this kind of sin and that's, that's fine. That's good. We have different temptations. We have places where we're weak, places where we're strong. It's almost like we kind of need each other in a, in a body. Almost. But the lie that can creep in and the way you can deceive yourself and think you are something is that you say, well, since that's his sin and not mine, I'm, I must really be better off than he is. Or really, more commonly, I must be okay. Right? Better off would immediately kind of start to expose us, but, but just okay. I think that's how I know that I'm okay. There's this perennial temptation that always confronts us that I'm, I'm tempted to categorize you and you're tempted to categorize me as an object of your competition rather than an object of your love. This is one of the most insightful parts of the Screwtape letters by C.S. Lewis. When, when Screwtape, the, the senior demon, tells Wormwood, the, the junior demon, you know, uh, our enemy, the, the Lord, he, he really does love these humans, and he wants them to love each other, so we've got to make them believe that their neighbor is not there for them to love, but there for them to compete with. Okay. Not to love, but to compete with. And so so that's your that's your goal, Screwtape says. Make, make your man think that his neighbors are his competition. Don't let it occur to him that he should be loving them. And and this is this goes back to a concept that a lot of you have, have talked about if you've if you've done anything with the sonship materials, that we are tempted to find our righteousness in earthly things rather than in Christ. Right? So so like the temptation that faces us right now, or at least I feel it acutely, I don't know about you, but, but we want to find our righteousness in, for instance, maybe how we respond to a virus, right? So if I respond, if, if what I'm projecting is courage, well, everybody else is afraid, that's my righteousness, right? It makes me better than you. Or if what I'm projecting is caution, well, everyone else is being stupid, that's my righteousness and that makes me better than you. Right? Or I think another thing, this is, a, uh, this is perhaps its own sermon, but I think a, a thing that troubles us a lot and that we wrestle with, and that I honestly, I, I, well, maybe in Revelation you can see some of this, but, but, the, but the idea that you want your, your church body to project particular images. right? So, so we want to be, be the courageous church. Or we want to be the overcautious and careful church. Like, that's the sort of identity we want our local church to have. And if I don't get to be one of those churches, then I'm out. Right. So it's, it's, it's really this temptation that we want to define. We want our body to have the particular sort of reputation virtue um, to find our righteousness in it. And so, so this is going to be your temptation. When, not if, but when, you help brothers and sisters who are caught up in transgression. That when we go to help them, someone, we will start to play a game of comparison in our head and how we're better off, right? We've so well avoided what they are blind to. We've successfully avoided what they've fallen into. And are you beginning to see why Paul uses the language of being caught Right? Who falls into a trap on purpose? Nobody. But that's what we want to do with, with the sin and the heartache that we see. We sometimes want to make it into a game of, of, uh, of, of uh, baseball runs and, and errors. right? And so I have more, more kind of spiritual runs than you do. You've got a lot more errors. And so you're the one that, that's, that's making the mistake rather than just seeing it as, as slips and, and stumblings and we have to catch one another. This is verse 4, by the way. We go to verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That sounds weird at first, like, should we be bragging about yourself? And in some sense, the answer is, is yes, if by that you mean recognizing gifts that God has given you. Paul did this, right? One moment he says, I'm the chief of sinners. The next moment he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So, so it's it's okay to recognize and be confident in the gifts that God has given you. And when you are following after Jesus and obeying him, it's okay to say, hey, do that, (laughs) that thing that I just did. Even if the other things that I do are, you know, that that you've seen are are not good, this one's good. And so he, he says, let each one test his own work. That is, let each one reflect on his own goodness, on his own evil, and he's going to have enough reason not to boast because he thinks he's better than his neighbor. Right? He's not going to boast in his neighbor, meaning he's not going to brag. He's not going to do the comparison thing right, that Screwtape talks about. He's not going to play the comparison game and then say, well, I'm better than you, so that means I'm okay, which is what we're always tempted to do. So what do we do then? We have this responsibility to care for each other, but it comes with this risk, right, that it's going to make us proud. So what does Paul give to help us? Well, he reminds us that there's going to be a reckoning. That's the last point. There's a reckoning. All right, go to verse 5, please. For each will have to bear his own load. That's the sort of closing verse of this paragraph. Each has to bear his own Now, that sounds contradictory if you think about it. Because I don't know if you remember, but back in verses 1 and 2, he said, bear one another's burdens. Now, wait a minute. A minute ago he said bear one another's burdens, and now he says each is gonna bear his own load. Which is it? But actually it's not a contradiction. It's think of it more like two weights on either end of a scale in order to balance the scale. It is bear one another's burdens. That's one side of the scale, right? And and, and when that good work starts to create pride in you, because you're so good at bearing people's burdens, right? Use this other reality, that on judgment day, on the last day, you will bear your own. It, it, it sobers you. It steadies you. It is bear one another's burdens, and when the, when, when the good work, if and when it stirs up pride in your heart, use this other reality, that you will bear your own sin on the last day. He's alluding to the final judgment in another, in another place in uh, Romans 14. Paul says that each of us on the last day will give an account, Right? You see, we're we're in covenant together. Brothers, sisters, that's how chapter 6 starts. We're in covenant together. We're part of a body together. We're bound together. We correct sin together. We help one another. But notice this movement from the plural brothers. And then by the time we get to verse 5, each one, each individual one will bear. So, So we've got... So, so is, it, is it individuals or is it a covenant community? It's both. It's both. When it comes to judgment, though, we each bear our own judgment. And this is what we heard, by the way, from Ezekiel a couple of sermons ago. Do you remember? Even if Noah and Job and Daniel were in your city, that still would not save you. Right? They would still only, um, uh, they, they themselves would be saved. You wouldn't because on the last day, each of us will stand before God and we will not be compared to other people. This is the distinction of the last day. We will simply be ourselves. Now, think of that, because I wonder if that's even possible this side of eternity. It's hard for us to imagine what individual judgment will be like, because so much of our life functions on comparison. Now, not all that's bad, by the way. I mean, so if, if you want to estimate how good you are at something, or if you just want to get better at something, you figure out where you are in comparison to other people who are good at it. When I wanted to learn how to preach, I listened to hours of John Piper and Timothy Keller and Don Carson. And I especially learned a lot from my mentors uh, Mike Sherritt and Jason Wood and I read sermons of, of dead guys who died before they could be put on audio recordings like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Chrysostom. Why? Because that's, that's a fundamental way that we learn and that we grow. We find people who are really good at the stuff we want to be good at and we compare ourselves to them in a sense. Yeah? And then we get a sense of so how far we have to go and what we still have left to do. And there's there's nothing wrong with that by itself. I tell you all that to say that there is this good and natural and healthy kind of comparison. So it's comparison for, uh, for uh, good emulation, imitation. And that's hardwired into you. It's, it's so hardwired into you that you can sometimes use it to sin and and not realize it. When you engage in the sinful kind of comparison where you try to excuse your sin, you don't even realize you're doing it. You don't even realize the subtle ways that you you try to bank your hope on the possibility that you're doing better than everyone else around you. That's because the good things we want to see in ourselves... And the evil things we want to remove from ourselves, both of those we tend to establish by comparison. Right. Right. When, when, we, when you meet somebody who's just a lot better at you than something, you're like, I, I didn't even know I needed to work on that. I, I really should work on that. Like, uh, Brian Elkins isn't here to defend himself, but I, I know he's listening. Like, I, I didn't know I was like so bad at, at patience with just people until I met Brian Elkins. And he's so much better at it than me. And and so I I want to learn how to do that better. Same thing. I I thought I was a, a reasonably how do I put this? I, I didn't think I like grumbled a lot. And then I got married to somebody who noticed my grumbling, and who was really good at not grumbling, by the way. Uh, and so that I didn't even know. I didn't even know. And so so we do establish these things by comparison. And then you will be tempted to use that same instrument of comparison to think about final judgment. That's why Paul says, each will have to bear his own load, steadies you. That's what awaits us then on the judgment day. And this should, this should sober you. On, on judgment day, we will finally know what it's like to stand alone before perfection and to hear our own story of sin and failure and evil. And there will be no one available for comparison other than perfection itself. But the good news of the gospel and of Christianity and of Jesus is that your account is yours to bear and it has already been born and you've been given a righteous account. Your sin is yours to bear, and it's been put to death. You are dead, and you have been made alive. You are crushed underneath the burden of sin, but Jesus Christ has taken all of that burden so that the grave and the judge will not have the last word, but Christ himself will say, all of the sin... Of this one who stands alone and condemned, it is paid for because of the day I stood alone and condemned and bore it for him. And I wonder if you see what that does in the here and now for you. Because it means that that we don't have to compete with each other anymore unless we're playing sports. (laughs) And then that's the only time we compete with each other, so to speak. That I don't don't have to fear you. That's what this means. I don't have to be afraid of you because we're not in that kind of competition because you are not a threat to my righteousness. My righteousness is secured. I don't have to be proud about being better than you at something because even if I am better than you at something, from heaven's perspective, that matters as much as an overcoat on a hot Louisiana day. I don't have to be ashamed about being worse at something than you. Because Jesus said, chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus said, you're here to help me. (laughs) So I don't have to worry that you're better at something than me because your job, you're here to help me with it. To help me bear this burden, to pick me up when I'm caught, to love me and to push me, as it were, back toward the promises of Jesus. And that is really liberating. It really is freeing. It means I'm totally free and at the same time, totally accountable. Totally free to love you and not to fear you. And totally accountable to my Savior on the last day who will ask me, did you love me more than these? Not, <laughs> not did you do a better job than these? Comparison. Did, did, you, did you pull off this spiritual life thing better than these? But did you love me? Did you love me more than, than the, the treasures of this life? My work then, the work that the Lord Jesus has put before me and the work, Christian, that the Lord Jesus has put before you is not... Me being better than you and you being better than me. That's not my work. My work isn't finished even if I think I am better than you. That's not my work either. Right? That's, not, that's not what I've been put here to accomplish is to manage to, to pull off the stunt that I'm better than you at something. That's not what I've been put here for. Each one will stand on his own on the last day. And that should compel you, it must compel you to flee to the cross of Jesus. And plead, Jesus, please help me. And then verse 1 and 2. Jesus, please help us, brothers and sisters, together to see sin removed from our midst and give us the courage to do it. Gracious Lord, press us toward each other and help us to deal gently with each other. Keep us from pride because I'm already starting to feel proud as I think about who maybe needs my help and correction. But this is what's given to you. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ who bore the only burden that can actually crush you. And so go and do likewise as your Savior, bearing one another's burdens with all gentleness and patience and love. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, This is the great work that you put before us, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, so fulfilling the law of Christ. Steady us. Steady us with sobriety as we as we, as it were, face off with this reality that when when pride would creep in, that we will that we will each bear our own load on the last day. Not our not our neighbors. And our hope is not that we are better off or better than any of our neighbors in anything. But rather, wherever we see one another struggling, that, that is the, that's the stage and the opportunity where you've given us the moment to obey the command to love my neighbor as myself. And so we confess that none of this will happen apart from your grace. So we ask for it now. In Jesus' name, amen.